Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Whale Nurse Podcast. This is episode number 79. My name is Slater, and I'm here with Adam and Caitlin. What's up? Hello. We also have a special guest again this week. We're here with John Kalamakitis from Cascadia Research Collective. Um, he is a senior research biologist with Cascadia, but also a founding member of the research organization. And um, they have been a nonprofit research group since 1979, based in Olympia, Washington. Um, John's research resume is so, so, so impressive. And basically, he's like the large whale research rock star of the world at the moment, at least in our opinion. So we're super excited to talk to you. And um, if you want to just kind of talk a little bit more about maybe your background or any other further introduction stuff, we'll try not to fangirl too much. <laughs> but thank you for joining us, John. Oh, it, it's a pleasure. Uh, really fun uh, to be here. And, and you guys seem like uh, you're a lot of fun. So I'm liking it. I'm, I'm picking up on the vibe here. <laughs> <laughs> We're vibes. trying to bring good vibes. Yeah, good yeah, vibes always. Right. Uh, well, you know, my, my career pathway was sort of unusual because when I started Cascadia in 1979, uh, uh, I just graduated the previous year from Evergreen State College, but I've been doing research as an undergraduate. Uh, but I got into this field doing research uh, uh, with no advanced degree. My highest degree is, remains a, a BS from Evergreen. Uh, I think someone introduced me. I think they were a University of Washington graduate student with a line that went something like, I don't know where John got his education, but he graduated <laughs> from the Evergreen State College. <laughs> Which I, you know, it was... Uh, kind of a dig on Evergreen, but uh, I'm not sure where I got my education, let's put it that way. Um, and, uh, and then uh, I really just imagined I might go back to school and get an advanced degree at some point if I needed it, and that day just didn't seem to come. <laughs> but uh, that's just a little bit uh, uh, on my background. It's uh, I do teach uh, uh, an occasional marine mammal biology course back at Evergreen, uh, either for undergraduates or for their graduate and then master's in environmental studies program. Nice. I really enjoy teaching and, uh, and doing that. Uh, and uh, I'm just starting to get to the age where I'm uh, realizing that that question of what am I, uh, what, what job or career do I really want to take is not so valid anymore. <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? That's right. yeah. I, I, I don't think I'm, I guess I'm done with that question. <laughs> well, it seems like you've done it all. So we'll have to get into it. What did you, what did you study at Evergreen then? Marine biology or? Yeah, well, Evergreen's a pretty unusual institution. Uh, mm -hmm. So in my four years at Evergreen, I took one course in my first year and did not take another course after that. So ah, First of all, that course took uh, two quarters and it was foundations of natural science and that all the basic sciences. But I started doing research towards the end of my freshman year and that's all I did for the remaining. That's all you did. Uh, managed to get uh, initially working with a team that had gotten a National Science Foundation grant. They had these programs called student originated studies. So they actually encouraged undergraduates and graduate students to apply for grants rather than the faculty. Uh, every Great. One of the most successful institutions getting it as undergraduates. And uh, uh, I initially studied uh, PCBs and their distribution in Puget Sound. It was one of the first studies sampling PCBs and fish wow. and mussels all around Puget Sound. 
Uh, it was kind of a new contaminant uh, just being realized as a widespread contaminant in the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, that I got naturally interested in, well, where do these PCBs end up and uh, what are they impacting? And realizing mm -hmm. one of our elements of our studies was looking at how PCB levels changed at different trophic levels. And we documented this, what was called biomagnification or yep. magnification, higher and higher levels as you get up the food chain. So then it was, well, what's at the top of the marine food chain? Well, then it was trying to get samples from seals. And uh, we did some of the first analyses of uh, killer whales, uh, uh, orca whales, and, and seeing the, the just record levels that we were seeing in some of these Puget Sound resident animals. In Seattle, there'd been a major spill of PCBs um, in the uh, 1970s uh, in the Duwamish waterway. And some of the effects of that were still apparent in how it spread through mm -hmm. the environment. Uh, so one of my first studies was thinking, okay, let's try to figure out the type of impacts PCBs are having on harbor seals. But mm -hmm. it quickly became apparent if you wanted to study reproductive effects or effects on mortality or you know, creation of birth effects, you needed to know what was normal. And often with harbor seals and many of the things, we didn't know what was normal. So I very Can't quickly do became interested in trying to document, well, what are the populations doing? How are they doing? What are the reproductive rates? What are the normal mortality rates? Can we find evidence of, of the effect of uh, PCBs on that? And from there, it just became more and more interested in the natural history and biology. Uh, yeah, I was the pinniped guy initially, uh, and whales came just a little later. Interesting. As they say pinnipeds need love too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's cool that you know you're right. You know, you totally need that baseline to to compare your data to, and it seems like you know for the most part, Cascadia, in terms of the marine mammal field as of now, you know, has has such an extensive library of data that it's kind of becoming the baseline for what we know. Um, you know, I mean, you, you have stuff like, I mean, if you look back at the whaling era, you know, you have records of just numbers there, but in terms of actual science, you know, modern day science with cetacea or marine mammals in general, it seems like there's a lot there with Cascadia. So we appreciate your work greatly. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, things that are like totally taught as a principle now are things that you were working on at the beginning of your career, things like biomagnification. Exactly. It's like, of course, that's how it works, but no one really understood the mechanism until back then. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of funny. There, there's some things that we've moved on from, but many of the things that I started studying in the 1970s are still very much open questions now. We have, we have mm -hmm. not answered them to any degree. You answer some questions and they raise others. So uh, sometimes it feels like there's amazing progress and sometimes it feels like we're just doing the same thing with new tools. And, and that's probably, I think part of what keeps me energized is you, you might study a problem for 10 years, but then now there are new tools and new ways to look at it. I, I think about, you know, uh, when we started some of our large whale work in the mid 1980s, you know, there was a brand new technique, if you will, the idea we could photo identify individuals, you know, and uh, it had been pioneered by the people like, uh, you know, uh, Mike Big with Killer Whales, yep. uh, Chuck Duraz with, uh, and Steve Katona with uh, Humpback Whales, or Jim Darling with Gray Whales, or Roger Payne with, uh, uh, with White Whales, uh, and those were all kind of new pioneering you know, things. And now photo ID, you know, you almost don't have to explain it anymore, but now yeah. new yeah. digital tags, you know, that get smaller <laughs> and smaller and have more capability. 
you know, I think about the first time that I deployed a, a, a tag on a blue whale. Uh, it was a National Geographic critter cam. You know, it was this huge <laughs> thing. They're uh, huge yeah. when they first started. <laughs> yeah, and it was, you know, a high eight video camera enclosed in uh, titanium. Wow. But just when we got that first footage back, you know, there, there's the science part of it. But just watching this thing and suddenly it was like, I'm riding the back of this. Incredible, <laughs> incredible, and, and I'm sure. Feeling, and, and just like it dove and it went down, <laughs> everything got dark. And it's like, <laughs> duh, it's dark out there. But even though <laughs> it's dark, how do they see anything? You know? yeah. How long incredible. did that? Do you remember how long that tag lasted on the blue whale? Well, we had to deploy a number of them that came off right away, but uh, you know we were incredibly thrilled with four hours and you know the video part wow. only deployed so long, but we did not have at that time we were using a corrosible uh, link to release the vacuum, and it wasn't very precise, and we lost several of them. Uh, we discovered one thing early on that first of all that the the, the research that had been done with some TDRs on blue whales before the one we deployed. This was done by a researcher named Don Kroll, who's still at UC Santa Cruz, had uh, studied uh, blue whale diving behavior. And the deepest dive they had documented was 200 meters, hmm. uh, 600, 700 feet. And mm -hmm. so that's what we were expecting on this. And we were now getting dives going down to three and 400 meters twice as far. Wow. And we only discovered a little bit later that the VHF transmitter we had was only rated to something like 250, 300 meters. Mm -hmm. So I think we lost some tags because the VHF transmitter failed and mm -hmm. we could never pick up the signal to find the tag again. <laughs> wow. Uh, so that was one of the surprises. They're dived deeper than we thought they were and it had some consequences <laughs> to our methodology. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Speaking of, speaking of blue whales, I have a, a question for you. Um, last year in Santa Barbara, we were, you know, really lucky to see a whale named Flu. Um, and so we saw flu about five times. And I know that you guys were able to sat tag and biopsy dart them. And people always, you know, ask us about flu because we got some nice drone video of him and we got some photos of him. And so everybody just loves that whale. So I was just wondering what your experience is or what you know of him. Yeah, no, I remember first encountering, uh, uh, you know, we, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think what we called it, but, you know, we immediately recognized it was a very, thin whale, you know, an animal that looked very thin whale-like, but it was clearly paired with a blue whale. Yeah, we did the same thing. We saw him and we were like, that is an interesting whale. It doesn't really look like a blue whale, doesn't really look like a fin whale, but we were freaking out, so. But it definitely looked more like a fin whale than a blue whale. Yes. In fact, it was paired with a blue whale immediately uh, tipped us off to that. And, and this was actually not far from where you saw it. We first encountered that whale. Uh, uh, just kind of northwest of San Miguel Island. Okay, yeah. Up by the kind of west, west end of the Santa Barbara west, Channel. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, we were able to get a sample uh, of it because we knew it was uh, unusual. Um, and it was Scott Baker processed that sample and confirmed that it was this 50-50 hybrid. Uh, so cool. And, fin whale. Cool. Uh, and then there's a bit of a strange story. We would re-encounter that whale multiple times over the years. Uh, and... Uh, uh, one of the one of the things that occurred is it ended up getting having a satellite tag deployed mm -hmm. uh, on it by OSU, 
And so we recently uh, submitted and published, I don't quite know if it's out, but there's a paper. Yeah, yeah. Daniel it, Palacios is the lead author, is that right? Uh, Tom Jefferson was the senior, uh, that's the first oh, author. Okay, I saw one come out of the plot. I thought it was Daniel's lab at OSU, but yeah, there's there something were, just came out. Yeah, and it, and it did just come back. It includes our citing history uh, with a, the genetic findings because uh, uh, after they satellite tagged it and collect, they collected a biopsy. And then we actually first heard from Scott when he said, well, we've got another thin blue whale hybrid 50% each way. And it's the same. <laughs> it's the same individual. Uh, and it was like, okay, got it. That makes sense. Uh, uh, and of awesome. course, there's a whole interesting story around that whale that also ties in uh, with another fascinating, unusual, enigmatic whale, which is the 52. 52. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Uh, or AKA the loneliest whale, or sometimes called the Watkins whale uh, because of the original work that Bill Watkins did describing this unusual 52 hertz call uh, that seemed to be primarily one individual and wasn't like any other uh, field that had been encountered. And we actually, you know, worked with a, a project trying to find the 52 Hertz whale. And, uh, and I think that uh, that film is actually, I think, just coming out. It's about, to, yeah, yeah I, just, I just saw it today. It's so from Lonely Whale, well, right? What your thoughts were on the 52 Hertz whale. <laughs> and, and, I, and I forget what's in there, but, you know, I very much think those two things you know, likely go together, but we could never yeah. prove it in the sense that, uh, and in that film, it documents the attempt to say, okay, well, we know this thin blue whale hybrid was at these locations and it got satellite tagged. Were there any acoustic detections? Of, and the 52 Hertz whale is a bit of a misnomer now because like all other blue whale calls, the, the frequency of the 52 Hertz whale has shifted downward. So it isn't 52 Hertz anymore. But still, it started there. Uh, yeah. That, and also in that show, you know, featuring the fact that it may not be the only uh, one that fits that bill. And I think the fact that it may not be the only one fits also with the fact we've seen other whales that we suspect uh, are bluefin hybrids. We just haven't been able to demonstrate that with a collected sample demonstrating that was the case for sure. But we've seen other whales, kind of that similar uh, intermix you know, a dorsal fin, very much like a fin whale, faint modeling, um, yeah. often not that clear white lower jaw uh, on the right side that you see in fin whales, and sometimes associated with, uh, you know, uh, with other blue whales. Uh, yeah. We suspect these are mostly the product of uh, a blue whale mother and a fin whale father, uh, and often it seems like they're associated with a blue whale. And they so, almost seem like they think they're blue whales or something. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what it was. We we saw flu every time we saw him. He was associated with ten or twelve blue whales in the area. And then the second we saw him, we we're like, we gotta get the drone above this thing. And so we did, and we got. I saw like a faint chevron when I was flying over him, and I was like, that's like a fin whale, but it also is hanging out with blue whales. It looks like a blue whale. So like my mind was just going crazy. <laughs> so it's great to hear you know your experience with him. We get, we get questions about flu all the time, so. Yeah, there's even at the end of that film, there's some footage that we got uh, after that, uh, some film footage that uh, I just took with uh, um, our SLR camera, you know, and, and GoPro. Uh, and again, nice. 
it, that that sighting was southwest of San Miguel Island, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think it wasn't as recent as the one uh, uh, you're talking about and saw. Uh, but again, it was uh, feeding in amongst blue whales. Awesome. And you know, and I would say, you know, if it is the loneliest whale, then clearly he's not that lonely. Not lonely. <laughs> yeah. Well, for for the people that are listening to the episode that maybe haven't, I don't know if we've talked about the 52 Hertz whale like way back at the beginning maybe of the podcast, back. but if you want to give us a little um history lesson since you're a little more invested right there in the heart of the story, John, um right. about like what are we talking about with this 52 Hertz whale? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it really kind of stemmed from the Navy's hydrophone arrays uh that were out and some of the early research on acoustics. Uh, in Wales really came from the Navy monitoring. Uh, and for a while, even some of the researchers associated with the Navy couldn't share their findings because uh, mm -hmm. these were part of uh, hydrophone networks that were being- National security. Yes, uh, <laughs> but, but it was really critical of, you know, for their work to be able to understand what were the sources of these different sounds that were picking up. So it was very much in their interest to be the earliest you know, kind of researchers trying to document the calls of whales. Uh, and that was where uh, these arrays allowed them to kind of localize, uh, you know, on the source of where these calls were coming from. Um, and, and there are a couple of examples in the Atlantic. There was, uh, and, and I'm still kind of curious what the story on it, but there was a particular blue whale uh, that the Navy researchers there nicknamed Old Blue was sort of the nickname that had a distinctive enough call that they were able to kind of track uh, its movements over extended periods. And the references to Old Blue and some of Chris Clark, uh, uh, another one of the kind of pioneering acoustic researchers with whales uh, uh, talked about, since blue whale calls and fin whales calls vary by ocean, you know, there's yeah. even a chance Old Blue's call. I, I haven't tried to revisit the issue. Could that be the result of you know, some hybrid, but it was distinctive enough that they felt they were tracking the same individual. Mm -hmm. And here in the North Pacific, uh, Bill Watkins with his work uh, was documenting this call with a fundamental frequency of 52 Hertz that, uh, uh, that he thought was distinctive enough that he saw it year after year, sometimes tracking its movements from the Gulf of Alaska down to off Southern California. That was sort of- wow. the of movements he documented. And I forget how many years, the film actually covers a little bit uh, of this, but there were many years uh, over which he tracked this whale. Uh, and that's why it became sort of a fascinating question of what was this whale? Uh, and from an acoustician standpoint, you can see why it would seem to be on its own because it produced this unique call. We have learned, and some of the work I did with blue whales was documenting that these loud broadcast calls that blue whales produce uh, are produced primarily by the males. Hmm. Uh, and there are certain calls uh, and some of these calls have been given letters, you'll hear, like here in the North Pacific, uh, in the Eastern North Pacific, we refer to an A and a B call. And those are two mm -hmm. types of these broadcast calls. But then there's also this more variable call, a D call that uh, is much shorter and variable. Uh, and does seem to be produced by both sexes. But when we started to deploy acoustic tags on blue whales, we were able to see only the males were producing the AB calls. It's still a bit of a tricky thing though. You know, 
we still get caught up in uh, some of the details of that because uh, when you put a, an acoustic tag on a whale, and the fact blue whales are typically either single or paired, and when paired, those are two whales in very close association. Mm -hmm. And most of those pairs are male-female pairs, female in the lead and male Interesting. trail wow. position. It's hard to separate from the tag yeah. whether the calling animal is the whale is that the tag's on or a whale maybe right next to it. Next to it, yeah. Lot, because it could be almost louder if it's the whale right next to it. Uh, and, and so we've been trying to use some of the accelerometry signal. Is that uh, a good enough indicator? We keep getting indications, but maybe we haven't proved it with 100% certainty that the accelerometry, which picks up the vibration, of the call, that seems to be a really good indicator that the tag uh, is picking up the signal from the whale that it's on as mm -hmm. transmitting through the water. But we're still trying to, you know, that's still a little bit of a, you know, a, a question we're trying to answer. But, you know, so some of these things about males produce calls, right now it's like primarily males where we can document produce the call. And we're not sure if how 100% that is because that sample size still isn't huge. Uh, yeah, marine mammal science is, is a statistician's worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, I, I don't know if I kind of fully closed the loop. Uh, you know, I don't want to take the whole mystery if you have a chance to look at this film. It does yeah. quote John Hildebrand and some of the work at Scripps uh, uh, Institution of, of Oceanography on uh, having picked up this call on their hydrophones as well in the Southern California bite in particular, and also some of the evidence they have that there's more than one whale in this category. Mm -hmm. So cool. Yeah, the first time I heard the story of the 52 Hertz whale, I was working for the Hildebrand lab on a Cal coffee survey, and their acoustician had started talking about it. And I, I had no idea that the whale was picked up off the coast of Alaska as well. I thought it was mostly a California thing. But yeah, the acoustician at the time was like, oh yeah, all these people think that like this whale's like some weird thing. And she's like, I think it's a hybrid. And I was like, actually, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty cool. Yeah. Um, let's see. I think so you've done so many cool projects over the years, but if you had to pick maybe a few favorites um, out of all the work you've done do any like boil right to the top? Yeah, well, you know, and I could cite several. Um, you know, one of the projects that uh, we were involved with starting in 2010 was called the SoCal Behavioral Response Study. And it was uh, a study trying to document uh, all different large whale uh, responses to Navy mid-frequency sonar, a really key mm -hmm. question. Uh, it was actually funded uh, by the Navy. Um, you know, we went, we went into uh, a, a re that research project, you know, concerned Cascadia uh, uh, generally does not work for private industry. We try to work just for government agencies because, uh, you know, government agencies are serving the public good and we didn't want to become like a consulting group, you know, just working for hire. Um, Absolutely. And working for the Navy, we have to think about that because the Navy you know, is one of the sources of impacts on marine mammals. So, uh, you know, once we, we decided that if it was a study we believed in, that it was directed independently, addressed a critical question, and there were no restrictions on 
data dissemination or publication or reporting. We didn't need mm -hmm. people to do it. That 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 was a study would be willing to do, you know, even if funded by the Navy. And so the behavioral response study it, it ended up bringing in a number of researchers. Uh, Brandon Southall, who's mm -hmm. based in the Monterey Bay area with Southall Environmental Associates. Uh, Jeremy Goldbogen, who runs the Goldbogen Lab now at Stanford. He actually had been a postdoc with Cascadia before that and was at Scripps uh, before that. Ari Freelander, who's now at UC Santa Cruz. Yep. Um, but we, we had like four boats, uh, something like 17 researchers. Uh, and we were both initially testing response to playback of much uh, quieter playback of Navy mid-frequency sonar, but eventually stepped up to actually looking at response to real Navy ships producing uh, and it was an exciting study for a number of things that sort of brought together people that have been trying to do this in other areas. It was my first chance to work closely with uh, Brandon and uh, Ari um, and some of the other researchers. And it was just such a uh, exciting time because, uh, you know, we came in Cascadia being we uh, having worked a lot in Southern California how behavioral response studies had been done before were very much centered on big ships <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. you know, in a very centralized team. And we sort of flipped that. Uh, and now the, the rigid hull inflatables were the ones out leading, finding the whales, deploying the tags. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the ship was more a central platform we could come together on. Uh, and I think out of that study, I forget how many publications have come out of that study, but it's you know, 30 or more wow. so really mm -hmm. basic science we deployed, you know, tags on species that there hadn't been tags deployed on. Uh, if anything, uh, some of our Navy sponsors, I think, were worried we were trying to do too many things. We were <laughs> trying to study every species that we could, and uh, and and there was a special part of that. Uh, there was a special chemistry and camaraderie among the researchers. We were all centered together, working, uh, you know, off the single boat. Uh, uh, Music is really close to uh, my heart in addition to Great. science. And we found out that uh, a, a number of us, including Brandon, Ari, Jeremy, were musicians. Uh, so we would play music at night. Uh, uh, Wait, don't you guys nice. have a band? Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, given it the name Kinematics, um, <laughs> would refer to the fact, you know, where if we had pulled into, you know, Santa Monica or Marina del Rey, it would sort of be like we were on a tour, you know. Awesome. When was that? ACS of 2014? Did you guys perform or was it after that? We did perform uh, for at the ACS Biennial. I want to say it was after that, though. I'm trying to remember the year. And the I second time we went to Newport. When was that? In 2018? Yeah. I think 2018. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, we didn't quite pull that off well. There's some complicated <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> it's not quite our signature performance, but uh, our, our performances on the boat, maybe we needed that generator humming. Or <laughs> yeah, you did. We did the, the boat rocking to really get uh, into the groove. Or something, but, uh, uh, but that project, both because of the excitement, you know, the previous BRS study in the Bahamas had worked for years and cost millions of dollars and had gotten an N of two. You know, and we were working more with, you know, uh, you know, hundreds 
uh, of both deployments. Uh, you know, our goal would be to try to have as many animals with these suction cup attached tags deployed. So any playback that we did, we would have multiple samples from it uh, mm -hmm. uh, and learn as much as possible from any playback we did. Uh, so I think there was both uh, a sense of discovery, a sense of camaraderie, a musical connection, <laughs> uh, a, a productivity that just was thrilling about that project. And, and, and we've really sought to stay together. There's something called the California Ocean Alliance. Uh, yes. You know, that really is, uh, you know, that same group of researchers uh, plus additional people um, that we've tried to kind of continue those collaborations because we all enjoy each other so much and, and wanted that collaboration to live on. So that's one as it relates to kind of the whole feeling of research. But, you know, there's also the piece, uh, I think, uh, uh, for me, tracking blue whales from starting to do photo ID with them and building up this catalog of now thousands of identified individual animals, you know, or the, that first deployment of the video tag to see what yep. it was like to be underwater. And I think I, I have a special affinity to, uh, you know, the research I've gotten to do uh, with blue whales uh, that makes that sort of a special project that I keep tracking as it moves into different iterations and different questions and different tools we can apply to it. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite encounter out of all of those projects? Like uh, an encounter maybe with a whale? Yes, well, you know- Or a harbor seal. Yeah, or albatross. There's two in 1990, we had been studying humpback whales for uh, five years. Uh, and uh, maybe just because I, I, I keep thinking of the Santa Barbara Channel, 1990 was the, First year I started to work in the Santa Barbara Channel, and, uh, we launched a Gaviota, you know, nice. yeah. a little uh, nice kind of state park launch where you launch uh -huh. a boat off the end of a pier. Awesome. Um, that was pretty special. And it was just a 15 and a half foot soft bottom inflatable. And I <laughs> cool. alone. Uh, and uh, these two humpback whales started circling the boat and getting kind of closer and closer. And at that time, we had not had a friendly whale encounter with humpback whales in five years. Wow. And these two whales, you know, just became bolder and bolder. And, and I was just not sure what to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs> trying to take pictures, uh, try to record data, you know, try to just experience it. I even yeah. at one point, you know, ran away, you know, because it was getting kind of scary. They were yeah. come from underneath the boat, straight up at the boat and, uh, yeah. and they just lie underneath the boat. And I kept thinking, you know, if they flip me into the water, you know, I'm, I'm a goner. A I'm goner, a yeah. I'm, you know, uh, you know, 20 miles from shore, this is not going to end well. And I, I remember motoring away and then getting about five miles away and just going, where was that going? I have to find <laughs> out, turn around, come back to the area. Uh, have I lost them? And I stop. And all of a sudden, these two whales come charging at me. And they wow. Right where they left off. You know, and I wondered, what's going to happen when they touch the boat? And I remember the first time a whale came up and just lay under the boat and it lifted its back ever so gently till it was touching the bottom of my boat. And then it just sort of arched its back and lifted me up in the air. Wow. Yeah, there you go. The back of this whale up in the air, but so gently. Uh, and then Incredible. I, I say, this is going to be okay. And then 
it would one of the whales would lie with its stomach up against the bottom of the boat with and its pectins on both sides of the boat. Oh just, my gosh. Just start pushing the boat. <laughs> Adam would have and this went on for uh, uh, an hour, you know. I even uh, you know uh, anyway, it, it's just like uh, and I was just kind of blown away by this as uh uh, you know, and none of my camera lenses were suitable for taking photos. Yeah, you don't have any wide angle. I know, yeah, I know that problem. <laughs> uh, but that encounter was not just kind of the first. It became more and more common. Like that happened one time in 1990. Uh, it happened three times in 1991 and then six times the year after that and then 12 times. We mm -hmm. sort of documented the expansion of these encounters and we started to hear more and more of the reports of it occurring with other boats but wow. at the time that was the first encounter we had had with wow. it first we'd heard about it with humpback whales and there's something a little bizarre that i can't quite put my finger on those two whales i got good id shots of and those two whales i had never seen before and i've never seen since what really and we, so, gotta, we gotta do a documentary finding those two whales seriously <laughs> well, what's that about i i have no idea how you know, because that is it, it ended up you know with that small population it's grown quite a bit since then but we were typically um you know each year it would be 90 to 95 percent of the whales we would have seen in a past year so it's mm -hmm. not like there was a huge segment of the population we had not identified so yeah. Either of those whales to ever have been seen before or since. Are you? I just don't quite know what to think about. That. Are you wow. sure you weren't daydreaming and you just made it all up in your? Dang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe. Not even, <laughs> not even well, happy so, whale can find it. <laughs> yeah. So Ted obviously has the data, right? Uh yes, yes, and and, and it's probably due. It's probably been about you know a number of years since I've said hey hey uh. What were those two whales, you know? And you know, maybe while we're doing this interview, I should look up those whales and make sure I'm not misspeaking that maybe maybe they have been encountered more recently. Well, it's so funny. We we had Ted on last week, and he was like looking things up in Happy Whale while he's talking to us. I, I want to do the same thing here. <laughs> Feel free. Yeah. But yeah. Well, so over the years, though, of those friendly encounters, as they continued to. Um, become more common did you have some of the same whales like repeat offenders that were friendly yes definitely and even within the uh, the same year and we thought I, I even felt like i was even seeing some evidence like you know if i'd go out of the same area uh you know in back-to-back -back days which used to be more the way i would operate i'd be in an area for a while and now i'm more kind of try to cover the whole west coast mm -hmm. you know you look at a map of where we did surveys of in 2018 uh, just one year, and there's squiggly lines along the entire West Coast because we're trying to cover um, all of those areas. But in, when we used to operate on one area, I remember even going out one time and having this friendly whale uh, come up, you know, and, and, I, and I said one unusual part of those first two friendly whales was that uh, ID history. But the other thing is I never had ones that were as bold, as dramatic as those two. I had other whales make contact with the boat, but never was it, you know, so extreme as that first encounter. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I had one whale be friendly, not as dramatic as that one. And then the next day I went out and now that whale was paired with another whale. 
And the whale from the previous day came over and was being friendly and could see that other whale getting closer and closer and closer. And then it was friendly too. And you could almost see how it spread uh, through the population uh, that way. So it was sort of uh, intriguing that way that it, that it happened that way. Man, uh, if you had enough compelling evidence, you could say that could be a cultural transmission type thing going on. Oh, very, very much so. It's kind of very much what it seemed like was, uh, was going on there. So I, I found it quite, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I have to admit, here's where my scientific side gets maybe a little bit jaded. You know, the first encounters were really thrilling. And, and then there was a point because it actually got so prevalent that it would sort of get in the way of your work. <laughs> but like, Imagine that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, got other, I got places to go. Sorry, I don't have time for this. <laughs> Gotta move on. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, so as, you know, somebody who obviously loves these animals and a research researcher like where do you where do you cross that line of an encounter like that like how how does your brain look at it from from somebody who's just out there having a good time having a magical encounter versus collecting data and and seeing these animals or i guess kind of my question is like like we 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 sometimes personify these animals but as a researcher you know, you're, you're trying to, you have a goal in mind. So like, where do you, where do you draw that line? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, as excited and as much in love as I am with being out on the ocean, being in small boats, encountering these wondrous creatures uh, and how much I love whales. Unfortunately, I have to say, um, it still pales for me with the excitement of a discovery. Interesting. And that's probably what fuels me more than anything that, uh, that feeling uh, that you're trying to answer some question and then you're realizing you're getting the answer to it mm -hmm. right here. And there's that moment that it's kind of like you, this goal you've been striving for is being achieved, but also the, the uniqueness. I mean, we're, there are billions of people in the world and how privileged it feels. Yeah. I, I'm finding something out that nobody else knows right now. And, and the excitement of learning that and getting to share that. I mean, I, I mean that to me is just the ultimate rush, you know? And, wow. And I think that's really what fuels me more than anything is, is that feeling is still to me, the most magical part of my, of my job. Wow. I'm so, I feel so inspired right now. I'm ready, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go out there and look at whales and answer questions. And So you, you talked about the Navy project and how that was an incredible collaboration. Um, do you think that that kind of makes the top of your list as far as like most meaningful projects for management of large whale species, or do you have any others in mind that you feel particularly were very impactful for protecting large whales? Yeah, well, certainly the ones that have had implications to human impacts, you know, rank high because uh, as much as science can sometimes uh, be about pure research, you know, just learning something new about the biology, I've still always been most thrilled when I can really even see the practical application and benefit, the applied science part still is what gets me. And especially when it's applied science that relates specifically to a type of human impact that you realize this information is gonna help us protect uh, these whales in a practical way. So certainly that Navy sonar project plays in there, but 
but it goes all the way back to, uh, you know, even the early work I did with contaminants, uh, you know, and discovering the type of contaminant levels we were finding in seals and realizing, oh, this is really important uh, for understanding what might be affecting these populations. Um, more recently with large whales, I think of the ship strike issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that really got driven home to us as ship strikes were revealed to be a major threat to blue whales, uh, fin whales, humpback whales, certainly right whales in the Atlantic. Uh, and some of our research was able to show uh, why whales, blue whales and fin whales were most vulnerable. We could actually see with our tags that these whales were taking almost no evasive action from yeah. even near misses uh, with ships. So it kind of explained, okay, we tend to think these whales are gonna be aware of this and know to avoid it, and they're not. Uh, and is that because they don't perceive a danger, they don't perceive how to avoid it. Uh, so understanding that was key. Another aspect of realizing that blue whales were spending twice as much time at the surface at night yeah. than in the day. And suddenly we recognized, okay, they're twice as vulnerable to ship strike at night than in the day. So ideas of trying to have spotters on ships, well, that's not going to really be more practical at night. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's those kinds of, um, I think, discoveries where you feel like this has a practical implication. Mm -hmm. And I serve on working groups, uh, you know, I've uh, uh, that relate to ship strike threats or entanglements, another topic we've uh, studied intensely, you know, or Navy sonar where we actually get to bring some of those research findings right into, you know, meetings with, you know, managers and shipping industry or the Navy and say, you know, here are findings and here are the practical implications of it. And, and here's how, you know, you could reduce this impact. Uh, so anyway, those still kind of uh, give me the most meaning, uh, you know, to the work I do when you have that almost direct from discovery to application uh, to maybe corrective action, you know, sometimes in scary ways, like uh, if I can give you uh, an example from very recently, uh, you know, in the, uh, since 2015, we've had this dramatic increase in entanglements of large whales. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. First documented off the California coast, uh, but increasingly seen up here in the Pacific Northwest as well. Uh, and species, especially humpback whales being affected uh, by it. It's a tricky question because the reported entanglements that that trend is based on, we know that the entanglement reports rec represent a small fraction of the right. true number of entanglements going on. Absolutely. So sometimes you have to worry is an increase in entanglement reports, is that improved reporting or is that increased occurrence? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but it also means the implications are much bigger because the problem is bigger than what those reports suggest they are. Uh, so we have a project funded by the Ocean Protection Council of the state of California uh, that was to gather data that would help inform decisions being made on when to open the Dungeness crab season. And this past fall, we were doing surveys to look at uh, how many whales were still around, were they using areas that overlapped uh, with where the Dungeness crab fishery would be occurring, uh, and Literally, the first set of surveys we were doing were uh, a little bit before the Dungeness crab season was scheduled to open. And we got off the water and we had to write, I was trying to write a report that day because the deadline was that night to provide wow. that information 
to a working group that was, uh, you know, included Dungeness Brad Fisherman that was evaluating the threat as well as the uh, California Department of Fish and Wildlife that was ultimately making the decision on whether to open the fishery or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, I mean, that was a rare case where you're, I mean, from doing the survey to uh, writing the summary, you know, to a decision that could affect the lives of whales was happening mm -hmm. within eight days of each other. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it had a, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about the thrill and the excitement, but that had almost more like a scary, that's when Stress. I said it, it had a sense of responsibility. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that, uh, you know, wasn't about the excitement, oh, isn't this wonderful? It was like, oh, we have this key responsibility here to do this right. Hmm. Wow, awesome. Um, so I kind of want to like jump backwards because I like should have asked this question at the beginning, but I didn't. Um, so when you first formed Cascadia Research Collective in 1979, um, I don't know if you want to just like share a little bit of like how that came together, um, like how this, you know, powerhouse of a research group has sustained into 2021 and will keep going into the future. Yeah, well, I don't get to tell the story very much, which was <laughs> origin of the idea of Cascadia Research. And, and I actually remember the very moment. Uh, uh, and uh, we were driving back. I'd given a presentation, I think, to the Seattle Audubon Society on harbor seals. Uh, and this was probably 1977 <laughs> or 78, maybe 78, early 78. Uh, and we were driving back, and there were three of us, uh, Jim Cubbage, uh, another of the founders and myself were in the front seat uh, and this other biologist that was also involved, all, all of us graduates of Evergreen, all of us had worked on harbor seals together. And Sue Carter was sitting in the back seat and we had, I think I had gone up and done some work on fur seals and the Pribilofs uh, uh, for the National Marine Mammal Lab. Uh, and Jim had worked with the National Marine Mammal Lab on bowhead whales. Sue had worked with me on the fur seals as well, but we had all been part of the harbor seal project. We were driving driving down and, and Sue was in the back seat. And she sort of said, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could form like our own organization and we could choose the projects we work on, you know, <laughs> the projects that would be the most meaningful that would serve conservation and would be our own boss. Uh, and, uh, you know, we could run it like a collective and it would be non-hierarchical and would do the research in an ethical way. And, uh, you know, uh, and I remember Jim and I kind of looking at each other and, uh, and I think it was probably me that my first words were, yeah, right, dream on. <laughs> like, who's going to fund that? You know, get real, you know, like, yeah. you know, what a preposterous idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, it stuck. Uh, uh, somehow Sue's idea stuck with us and we ended up, uh, and it was just a few years ago, I got to share that story. I, I don't think I had shared that story with Sue who actually uh, went to Alaska and left and uh, uh, didn't end up staying with Cascadia Research, but I, I only recently got to share with you, you know, you were the one who came up with this idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Uh, but that was the start of it. We, um, uh, you know, it started as a living room operation. Uh, Jim and I owned a house together. It became the headquarters for Cascadia. Uh, we initially converted the work we were doing. Uh, there were, I think, five of us that were working seasonally as biologists. Uh, like when we did our harbor seal 
final presentation as our graduation project from Evergreen. Uh, I think five of us were hired on the spot that night by researchers that had come down wow. from Seattle that worked with the Marine Mammal Lab, you know, who I, I think <laughs> thought we were doing great stuff. And it was sort of like, do you want to come work for us? And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is, I like this. That's <laughs> um, the dream. <laughs> uh, but, but, but our first step was really to, to go back to them and say, well, you know, we, we worked as temporary employees, but uh, we're starting this new organization, Cascadia Research. And, uh, we don't want to work as employees anymore, but would be really interested in continuing this work. Uh, you know, if there's any chance you'd want to contract this new entity, uh, keep that project going. And uh, and maybe here's where I have to look, to look at my timeline. But if I recall correctly, I think it might have been thanks to Ronald Reagan, believe it or not. Really? Uh, and, and maybe I've got this timeline wrong, but there was a big push at that time to reduce uh, the size of the federal workforce and to contract more. And so where we went sort of kind of sheepishly to our, you know, super, you know, the people who had hired us and said, well, we don't want to do it as employees. There's any chance you want to contract us. And they were going, why? We've just gotten a directive. We should be contracting more work out. I <laughs> would work out great. You know, so it was like fortuitous <laughs> timing. So like right away, we had some contracts to wow. continue work with this brand new nonprofit organization that we started. And, and from there, we started to then uh, write proposals, uh, competitive, uh, you know, bids where we'd be competing against the University of Washington or Battelle Labs. And, uh, and we were kind of weird. We were that weird group that didn't have anyone with a PhD or advanced degrees, but somehow we're doing this interesting research. And I think it both hurt us, but in some ways it was our notoriety too. <laughs> uh, and we ended up winning some, many of these competitive bids. Uh, uh, maybe because we worked more inexpensively, that was part of it, but we also would win on the merit side. We would actually come up with new ways to try to do things. And, uh, and that's what, that's how we got started. And it wasn't until 1984 that we, uh, uh got the, uh, started to get some actually outside offices. Uh, we started with room, room in the building we are, and now we have most of the floor, uh, uh, and you know, Rob, people like Robin Baird joined us. So now we have a, a bona fide PhD <laughs> and Robin, uh, who apparently was on one of your previous. Yeah, yeah. he was. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, so we, we're not all without advanced degrees anymore. Uh, <laughs> some of us have uh, remained that, uh, and it just uh, kind of steadily grew from uh, from there. In fact, even to the point where. Right now, part of the reason we're hiring the new position we're hiring is uh, true to that tradition. A lot of the administrative duties were duties that we just got used to doing ourselves and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, not wanting to have a hierarchical structure. We had no executive director, no kind of titles, even, you know, my title, I'm a research biologist, uh, you know, and I'm one of the co-founders of Cascadia Research. Uh, um, as a nonprofit, we're run by a board, uh, you know, that has become increasingly active. Uh, but we had to sort of adapt and change over time. But that's how we started. Uh, and, uh, and I think it was some fortuitous events that happened to come our way. I love that story. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we did this thing? <laughs> Dream on. Analogy. Yeah. yeah, right. But I think it's, I think it's cool that a lot of the founding members, you know, you just started as students with bachelor's degrees. I think sometimes we get way too wrapped up in 
the status of academia and like that's not really what makes or breaks a researcher it's the innovation and the you know fortitude to stick with a project and I think marine scientists are some of the most creative people on earth and that's not something you learn by getting a PhD so I mean if you want to get one more power to you I'm always a big fan of education but I'm I don't think it's necessary to do you know monumental work like some of the things that you've worked on I mean, when I have students come to me and ask advice how to get into this career, I do try to, I mean, I first of all try to let them know that, you know, you know, the, the normal and most straightforward pathway is, you know, uh, uh, you know, getting an advanced degree. And usually if you get a master's, you're going to feel like you need to get a PhD. Yep. <laughs> so you may want to cut right to that, uh, the beginning. And, and, and this is the normal way you do it, uh, you know, but then, you know, give, give the example of, you know, myself or some of the other people and just to say, there are other paths uh, mm -hmm. that can be taken and don't let anyone tell you it can't be done a certain way. Uh, yeah. that, that piece, you know, for me, I wasn't necessarily a great student. Uh, uh, for me, learning was a, uh, you know, it was hard to get motivated if I didn't see a purpose for it. Uh, Same. Part of Cascadia's philosophy was, uh, uh, you know, uh, if we need to do X and we don't know how to do X, well, now you got now you're motivated to learn how to do X. You know whether yep. that was, you know statistics or a different approach. Uh, we used to have an attitude: you could learn anything in a week, uh, <laughs> uh, and that's what uh, Jim and I would tell tell each other. You know, uh, um, you know now I, I've maybe changed that a little bit. Rather than you can learn anything in a week, uh, you can collaborate with anyone. Who knows how to do that already? <laughs> yeah. And that's why collaboration is uh, so many uh, elements of technology or uh, advanced modeling or statistics or you know Bayesian methods. As things become more complicated and advanced, more and more, I think what our reputation has also been is to try to be extremely collaborative. Um, yeah. The flash humpback whale study, maybe another study Gosh, I would yeah. cite as being uh, extremely, that was one that uh, went through Cascadia. Um, uh, I was sort of the co-manager of it uh, uh, with uh, Dave Matilla, who was with NOAA at the time. And I think we had, uh, you know, over 400 researchers and naturalists that contributed to it. Uh, we had, uh, you know, over 100 organizations, uh, 11 countries, uh, that were involved in that research. And I, and I think I keep, I, I've said this and no one's challenged me that it's the largest collaborative study of whales conducted. And that was 2004 I, to 2006. Um, I think you're probably still, I think you still hold the record for that one. That was quite an undertaking, that splash study. So that, and then projects like the SoCal BRS that I talked about already just taught me the real value of, you know, collaboration and working mm -hmm. as a and how not only is that the one of the best ways to do it, but it's one of the more fulfilling and interesting ways. Uh, you know, I do have to admit, I will just say that, you know, sometimes in those BRS years, uh, you know, I would go from working, uh, you know, uh, helping to manage a, a four boat, you know, 20 plus researcher operation, you know, and then from there I would go to maybe working uh, with a couple of boats and there'd be four or five of us, you know, working on a project. And from there, as I work my way back up the coast, it might end up being just me uh, going out alone and doing photo ID. Uh, and uh, all of those 
had their unique aspects that I loved. Mm -hmm. you know, there, there were parts of working in a small team or this big team where all these people, I mean, I couldn't believe you'd start, when we'd start the season with the BRS, you'd go, uh, you know, and Brandon and I were uh, sort of co-managing uh, that project. Uh, uh, and you'd go and there'd be 20 people setting up aspects of their researcher and research. And I feel like there was really nothing for me to do because everyone knew what they were doing so well. And it'd be yeah. incredible to be surrounded by these incredibly competent people, you know, setting up and taking off for their projects. But then I also love that part of being out on the water uh, alone, you know, 30, 40 miles offshore, uh, you know, in the boat. Uh, that's also a, a really exciting and beautiful part. So it kind of made me appreciate that full range of things too. Every aspect. We'll do all of those, yeah. Um, going back to the blue whale research, do you have a blue whale population estimate for the West Coast? Uh, yes, we're about to generate a new one. Uh, but our estimates are pretty consistently. I like to, I, I, you know, uh, even though we have different numbers that we've come up with different models, it really is about 2000. Uh, and it has stayed that way, unlike humpback whales, where it's changed dramatically. Uh, our estimates going back to the 1990s have been in that same ballpark. We do not have a clear increasing or decreasing uh, trend in that estimate of blue whale abundance. It, it, it's meant two things, two possibilities. One that uh, uh, is good news, uh, and there was a paper uh, and a study done by uh, uh, graduate students and uh, Professor Trevor Branch at University of Washington that concluded blue whales were likely at carrying capacity in the Eastern North Pacific. So that could be the good news part of it. I had some criticisms of uh, some of their assumptions uh, in that model. The other thing I worry about is that we do know with uh, the level of ship strikes occurring and our current estimates mm -hmm. of the degree to which the reports are underreported, like we think it may only be uh, you know, on the order of 5% of ship strike mm -hmm. mortality and blue whale mortality gets documented. Uh, so true mortality may be 20 times uh, you know, okay. what it is. Um, uh, that those estimates would also suggest another possible explanation, which is that uh, you know, the level of anthropogenic mortality and natural mortality is actually keeping the population from growing uh, wow. this ship strike uh, threat, which I think is probably greatest uh, with blue whales. A paper we did with Cotton Rockwood a few years ago showed with some basic assumptions <clears throat> Uh, about ship strike mortality and estimating encounter rates uh, that true ship strike mortality could be 100 or more animals, uh, uh, blue whales a year and would wow. be enough to be affecting, you know. What? Absolutely, wow. 100 a year. Oh my gosh, what, I didn't what, even think it'd be that high. So with the, with the blue whales and ship strike, like in the summertime last year, you know, we saw very close glimpses of that interaction we never actually saw a whale get hit thank nature thank whoever you know I, I don't know if i want to see that i think i think it if somebody could capture that moment i think it would be a world changing aspect but where where, where do you see that going yeah. maybe especially in the santa barbara channel because i yeah. i know it i know it best and i and i've seen how close yeah. i've seen how it happens so what do you what do you think about that you know, and I'll, I'll make a quick point when people wonder why, why would we, 
uh, why, why, uh, why do I think such a small proportion of ship strikes get documented? And, and partly it's because we know from the population dynamics, how many whales are born and what the population is staying level at, how many must be dying. And then we can look mm -hmm. at how many yeah. mortalities of any type get documented. And that's where you come up with this less than 5% uh, number. But we also see it uh, from the fact that A, even when blue whales get wrapped around the bow of ships and get dragged into ports, which has occurred many times, mm -hmm. uh, the ship is typically unaware that it's struck. Absolutely, whale. yeah. And then two, we know from the tag deployments we do uh, that blue whales actually sink. They're negatively buoyant. Right. Uh, when they go down, they're accelerating without beating their flukes and they have to beat their flutes actively to come back to the surface. So if they uh, are struck and killed and especially wow. if anything breaks the body of the animal open in any way, they're going to sink and either a bloating won't bring them to the surface or if they sink in deep enough water, it's going to, it, the bloating is never going to be able to counteract the level of water pressure yeah. uh, that's keeping uh, them from expanding and, and making them positively. Uh, wow. uh, one of the frustrating things about the ship strike issue is we know some clear ways to reduce that. Absolutely. Uh, and, and they've been put into effect, but to limited degrees. So first and foremost, separate uh, shipping lanes and ship traffic lanes from the areas of whale concentration. In the Santa Barbara Channel, uh, the inbound shipping lane was moved one mile. Yeah, I know. Partly to reduce, uh, and it was done by you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, decreasing the width of the separation zone between yep. the inbound and outbound. And you have you know, islands on one side and you have oil platforms on the other, so you're yep. limited. But for example, we could have easily uh, moved and increased shipping traffic going south of the Channel Islands. Uh, but that takes it through Navy ranges. And mm -hmm. the Navy has resisted By any duplication of shipping lanes uh, through their training area. Even though when some of the uh, air pollution control regulations came into effect, much of the shipping traffic shifted on its own to south of the islands so it could uh, not have to shift to clean burning fuel which was required when they got within a certain distance of shore. Uh, and uh, we tried to make the argument to the Navy that, well, wouldn't it be better that at least it would be predictable and in lanes you could define than in this unpredictable way it is currently. And they were just reluctant to resist that. Uh, so I do feel like there's some real progress we could make at moving shipping lanes. Uh, we've shown by putting observers on some of the ships that the routes that ships take between US ports so once they leave the Santa Barbara Channel, if they're either coming to, uh, going to or coming from like uh, ports in San Francisco Bay, they transit along the coast. Uh, and those aren't designated shipping lanes, but if we shifted those offshore, mm -hmm. most of the whale encounters those ships have by putting observers on the ships actually occur outside the shipping lanes on those transit routes down the coast. Mm -hmm. So we could shift those offshore. So there are at least two ways we could better spatially separate whales from shipping lanes by moving those either routes or those designated shipping lanes. We also know that decreasing ship speed is gonna reduce the lethality of ship strikes. We suspect it reduces the incidence, but that's not quite as well proven as we know it, it reduces the lethality. And yet all we've done is either create voluntary uh, requests yeah. 
or in the case of a, a very effective program uh, of providing financial incentives to ships to slow down. And they will slow down. But wouldn't it be much simpler just to make it a mandatory slowdown? Yeah. Then, you know, it isn't requiring all these resources. Uh, I've had the shipping industry people tell me themselves, they say, well, we're not taking the voluntary slowdown seriously, seriously. Because clearly you're not taking it seriously. If you were serious about it, you'd make it mandatory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're already yeah. communicating to us. And also when you make it voluntary, you're in essence penalizing those shipping companies that are choosing to be responsible. Mm -hmm. They're operating at a competitive disadvantage to the companies that ignore it. What kind yeah. of incentive is that? You know? yeah. And obviously by providing the financial incentive, you counter that. But wouldn't it be simpler to just create an even playing field and make it a mandatory? Uh, and so I continue to be frustrated that even as new programs like the Whale Safe program, Whale Safe, yeah. uh, you know, or the efforts the sanctuary has taken, they're still relying on voluntary. We know from other areas that there's very clear continuum. Uh, voluntary restrictions with no incentives and no follow-up are the least effective. Yep. You start to add um, kind of reporting, you know, kind of shame people, <laughs> you know, and you get better adherence. You add yeah. financial incentives, you get better adherence. But all of that is still short of what happens if you make it mandatory. And of mm -hmm. course, there's a gradient once you make it mandatory, mandatory with no enforcement, uh, that's not as effective than if you do mandatory with enforcement. Yeah. But there's a very clear continuum that, that we know and we've known for 10 years. And yet we're not going to the step that we know would be effective. And so having served on a few of these working groups and that even members of the industry know this, I just, I get frustrated that we have this information and, uh, and still we're taking these half measures. Mm -hmm. crazy i've i've heard um a couple of different things about blue whales in the santa barbara channel i've heard that the that feeding ground might be a, a temporary feeding ground or i've also heard that you know that's the main spot for the for this part of the of the pacific for the blue whales so what do you think about that no it's very much uh, and it is one of the complicating factors there there are kind of predictable higher density areas for blue whales, but there's also tremendous year-to-year -year variation and links, you know, to oceanographic features and the California current and the areas of upwelling vary dramatically. And not only does it affect how whales are distributed within Southern California or California, but it has a major effect on the proportion of the blue whale population that is even feeding on the U.S. West Coast. Mm -hmm. Increasingly in the 1990s, uh, which were very big krill years, uh, the estimates of blue whale density, you know, showed that there were close to 2,000 blue whales feeding along the U.S. West Coast at any one time. It very closely matched our abundance estimate. But since there in the 2000 and 2010s, the estimates of how many whale, blue whales are present from, these are from line transect meth methods that estimate density, are coming out at less than half of our estimate of the abundance, uh, our abundance estimates of blue whales, suggesting on average less than half of the blue whales are feeding off the U.S. West Coast at any moment in time. Mm -hmm. uh, we know some of the same whales that feed in the Southern California Bite. We've sighted up into the Gulf of Alaska and off Southeast Alaska. We know many of them continue to feed off the West Coast of Baja. Some may even continue to feed in, in other areas further south from there. Uh, 
So we see even a variation of what proportion of the blue whale population even comes to feed in that area. So all of that varies year to year. Uh, and so there's, you know, uh, there's a good case that we could probably even better estimate blue whale occurrence and, and we could, if we used the dynamic models that took into account those shifts year to Absolutely. year seasonally. But the reason why I haven't <clears throat> been a strong advocate for them is because what we hear from the shipping industry is that they need predictability. You know, they have schedules they need to keep, appointments they need to keep, their ships are on a route. So having slowing down one time and not another, uh, or go this route now and go a different route later that takes longer, that creates problems for them. It's almost easier for them to say, you know, give us something predictable, even if it means we're slowing down sometimes in the Santa Barbara Channel when they're not whales there. there. But at yeah. least, uh, it's predictable. Uh, and, um, you know, so that that's, you know, it's a really good point. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the variability in blue whale occurrence. Absolutely. Year to year can be pretty dramatic, uh, you know, but we still can predict with, you know, with, uh, you know, greater than random probability, what are the more likely areas for blue whales uh, to be uh, enough that we can wrap some of these shipping lanes uh, to reduce those odds anyway, even if we're not eliminating them. So I, I think I have one kind of like final question to kind of go off of what you're saying with shipping. So like, where do we go from here to protect large whales? You've done so much work looking at you know, where humanity and, and cetaceans meet. And so how do we, how do we coexist as we continue to industrialize our oceans and see whales recover? Well, I'm a firm believer that, uh, you know, while much of the environmental news out there is grim, uh, we also need to uh, kind of realize the successes we've had. And, and in some ways that can energize us and make us more positive about making changes. Uh, the fact that uh, from when I started studying humpback whales in the 1980s off the U.S. West Coast to now, the population has increased almost tenfold for humpback wow. whales. I mean, incredibly encouraging, and that's largely recovery from commercial whaling. Humpback whales were uh, and blue whales were hunted, you know, as recently as 1966 off the California coast from whaling stations operating out of areas like San Francisco Bay. Uh, so, you know, the changes we've made in whaling you know, have resulted in a remarkable recovery of some of these whale populations. And some of the issues like entang increased entanglements, increased ship strikes uh, are partly the result in the case of humpback whales of that recovery. There are more whales uh, out there to be struck or to be entangled, but also they've expanded as their populations have expanded, they've had to expand their habitats and feeding areas, sometimes bringing them more into overlap. Uh, with shallower water areas where the Dungeness crab fishery is, or coming into the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Salish Sea and Puget Sound, where there's added boat traffic and shipping traffic. Um, so, uh, so I think you know uh, we can see that we can have enormous positive effects on these populations and successes, uh, and appreciate and enjoy them more. Uh, certainly, we've come to see uh, over the last ten years the incredible economic benefits. Uh, from whale watching and things like that. Now there's increasing evidence that you know, whales play this productive role in increasing ocean productivity that might mm -hmm. affect other economic uh, um, you know, fisheries. You know, instead of being in competition with fisheries, so in some cases they might be benefiting uh, fisheries or 
you know, providing much, you know, greater life in the oceans that helps with uh, climate change and sequestering carbon. Uh, so I think um, those all represent ways we've made uh, both progress in uh, protecting whales, but also progress in understanding how greater protections can serve these much greater, you know, and uh, purposes other than just preserving whales for whale's sake, which I think motivated many of us from the start. Now there are even economic uh, and other arguments that can be made. Uh, and I think those carry weight. So I'm actually very optimistic about the future. Seeing in each state, California, Oregon, and Washington, all three states have groups of Dungeness crab fishermen meeting together, trying to strategize how can we reduce entanglements. Uh, you know, they don't want their fishery labeled as a dirty fishery. They don't want to see the go, go the route of what happened to the Persane fishery for tuna uh, with the dolphin. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so you even see whether it's, you know, the industry, uh, shipping industry or fishing industry uh, wanting to be more responsible. Um, I tend to view that, uh, you know, all the change that's occurred uh, has really come at the behest of people. Mm -hmm. Caring, taking action, uh, manifesting that action through environmental groups uh, that then translate that action into lobbying or even legal suits. And that's what then forces government and industry action. Government action maybe to then impose regulations that then industry adopts and, and takes on. So the most important thing we can do, podcasts like this, educating <laughs> People getting people motivated into whales, uh, translating that into action that environmental groups uh, can take. We want to see the data we gather then be available to environmental groups, uh, to managers, you know, to industry to then be able to make effective decisions. But I think there's a lot of reasons for hope from seeing those combination of factors coming together. Awesome. Thank I you. I feel so inspired. I know. Oh, let's save the world. <laughs> I'm going to save the world. <laughs> wow. Well, it's been incredible to chat with you, John. Thank you so much for your time this evening. That was really lots of good stuff in there. Yeah. Um, well, fun talking to you guys. And uh, yeah. at the end of the long day, it, it, it got me up, got me going again. Yeah, great. <laughs> I'm excited again now. Good. And I hope all our listeners are too. So for those of you that made it all the way to the end of our episode, thank you for listening all the way through. Um, what do you guys want the secret whale to be this week? The 52 whale. Yeah. Lonely whale. Lonely whale? Hertz. Yeah, every every week at the end of our podcast, we choose a random whale or a whale that we talked okay. about to be the to be the special whale at the end. So I think we'll do the fifty-two hertz whale. Flu, all right. our boy flu. Whatever you want, fifty-two yeah. hertz whale, lonely whale, flu. Any of them, we'll take them on the Instagram comments later. <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you everyone to for listening and uh, to supporting the podcast by following us on social media or supporting us on Patreon. We really appreciate. Um, sharing the podcast wherever you listen to it, rating it, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone. And make sure to check out Cascadia Research if you haven't yes. done it for whatever reason so far. <laughs> CascadiaResearch.org and there's links to a Facebook, Twitter accounts. We have a YouTube channel with some of the video that I spoke yeah, about. cool uh, videos on their YouTube uh, channel. Yeah, they don't, don't get a lot of coverage because we're, uh, especially I'm not the greatest at uh, 
getting the word out. Uh, Robin does yeah. better with the Hawaii research, but yes, check it out for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys. Thank you for thank being you. here, John.